Okay, I have a bit of a pet peeve when it comes to a peculiar word in the English language. Uh, it's, it, the word I'm referencing is the word literally, or literally, depending on how you might want to say it. I, and I hear people misuse it all the time. Uh, I've heard sportscasters, for instance, say the quarterback literally carved up the defense's secondary. No. <laughs> if that were true, he would have to be arrested. Uh, one of my kids says it to me all the time, too. He, he peppers it in almost every story he tells me. He'll say something in reference to uh, someone at school, for instance. They literally wouldn't stop talking to me the entire class. So the entire class he talked to you without stopping at all, literally. And you got in trouble somehow. <laughs> and he literally didn't stop talking. So when you use the word literally... Uh, you use it when you want to emphasize uh, that what you're saying is, uh, is you want to emphasize the fact that it is true what you're saying, even though it seems somewhat exaggerated or, or surprising. It literally took hundreds of us to gather out on the street and shovel the snow. That may actually be true, and if that's the case, it literally is true, right? So there's another instance when we use lit the word literally, and it's in the context of reading literature. When we read literature, when we read the Bible in particular, uh, will often ask the question, do you interpret the Bible literally? Okay, that's, that's the question I want to propose to you right from the onset. Do we interpret the Bible literally? Who wants to take a shot at answering this one just to get us started? Do we interpret the Bible literally? Danny, oh, you know what? I, ha I have this new microphone set up, so I'm going to make you talk in the microphone. So I'm going to go all the way to the back here. Danny. I would say no, uh, but I th there's a lot to be taken into account for the context of whatever type of genre that is represented within the Bible. Excellent. Okay, so Danny specifically mentions genre. Okay, so there are considerations. Context, he says. Someone else? Do we interpret the Bible literally? Do we read the Bible literally, I should say? Yes, no? Maybe so? No one wants to take a, a shot early on. <laughs> I understand. Yeah, I don't, I'm not going to, don't worry, I'm not trying to trap you here, but there, that's, a, it's, Danny's response is a good response, okay, and, and it has all the relevance in what we're going to be discussing today. We're doing a study on the Apostles' Creed, and in this study we're going line by line, some cases word by word, to the Apostles' Creed, and I mentioned in the first session, the Apostles' Creed isn't the Word of God, right? But it concisely states what we believe as Christians. It concisely states many of the essential, non-negotiable elements of our faith. And again, remember, these creeds were established in order to, to combat heresies that were going on early in the church. And so the, the line that we're looking at today is maker of heaven and earth. Maker of heaven and earth, which is why Will uh, cued us up with uh, uh, this is my father's world so appropriately. So first I want to discuss a little bit of the how. How did God make heaven and earth? As much as the word itself gives us, we'll, uh, we'll discuss that. And I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I've done similar lectures on this topic a number of times, and I promise you we're not going to walk away agreeing on the how. We're not going to walk away agreeing on, on every bit of this uh, uh, that, that we're going to discuss today, but just take my word for it at this point. But, but then there's one thing that we all have to agree upon. Okay, at the conclusion of our time, there's one thing that we have to agree upon, God being the maker of heaven and earth, as far as that's concerned. And I'll get into that in a bit. So how did he do it? 
Because it's a, a very relevant topic for our culture today, this is a non-starter for a lot of people, okay, as far as God and, and faith and religion is concerned. Imagine you have a non-believing friend, and that friend challenges you on your belief on the premise that's set up for us in the Bible, that the earth and everything in it, the animals, the plants, mountains, oceans, humanity, all of it was created in six days. Now, oftentimes, again, this is a non-starter for our non-believing friends, because at least as they see it, this sort of requires them to, to check their brains in or check their minds in at the door, because what they've discovered, at least through the science books, is that it tells us that the earth is billions and billions of years old. And at least to some, this idea lies in conflict from what is understood in historical Christianity. Now, believe it or not, this whole discussion is a pretty recent controversy. This wasn't a topic that the church struggled with, say, 200 years ago, right? For much of our church history, creation has been a topic that most of us could agree upon. The Bible says that God created the earth and all that was in it six days and rested on the seventh, and by and large, for at least around 15, 1600 years of church history, uh, we agreed on that. We generally agreed on that, that God created the earth in six days, 144 hours, give or take, maybe a few minutes. But then, fast forward a few hundred years in countless scientific developments, and the creation account in the Bible is now fiercely challenged, okay? Fiercely challenged. Up to just a few hundred years ago, again, widely interpreted that the world was perhaps about six to 7,000 years old. Because biblical scholars, what they would do is they would take the genealogical accounts that we have in, for instance, Genesis, and, and, and backdate that all the way to Adam and Eve. And what they determined, therefore, was that the earth couldn't have been more than six or 7,000 years old. Okay, then we have scientific advancements and discoveries. And one of those discoveries, as an example, has to do with the speed of light, okay? And the distance that stars that are generating that light that are millions, they say, of, of light years away, millions of miles away. And, and we're receiving light from those stars. What the, the conclusion is, is that light would have had to originate more than six or 7,000 years ago, okay? That light at the distance at which light travels and the speed at which it travels would have had to originate millions of years ago, millions upon millions. Now, I know what many of you are thinking at this point insofar as the creation account is concerned. In an instant, could God not create something that gave the appearance of something that is millions upon millions of years old? And I think most of us would probably say, yeah, I think he could do that. I think he could do that. But it's the same thing, for instance, with carbon dating, uh, dating the age of, of rocks. They perhaps have the appearance of thousands and thousands of years old, but what do we make of that? Again, yes, God can make a rock that is a day old that gives the appearance of a rock that is a million years old. But I would ask you, why would he do that? Why would he do that? And this is food for thought. What did Adam look like when Adam was created? Did you ever think about that? Was Adam, did he look like a man when he was first created, or was he created as a fertilized egg somehow looking, or a, an infant, or a baby, that we don't have any of this information. This is not given to us in the Bible. What did Adam, did he have wrinkles? Or if, was he created as a man with smooth skin from day one? And I've often heard, did he have a belly button? Think about that. <laughs> I wonder, right? 
Okay, now, God has the ability to do any of that, right? To create a, a fully grown man that is one day old that looks like a 40-year-old. He can create a rock a bazillion years old that looks like a bazillion years old, but it's really only one day old. And he, have may, he may have his reasons for doing that that I don't understand. But what if he gave us rocks that look millions and millions of years old because they're actually millions and millions of years old? And if that's the case, what do we as Bible-believing Christians have to say about that? Again, that's why I said this is only a controversy that's only been discussed in the church maybe a couple hundred years. You know, because again, back in the 1500s, if you said the earth is 7,000 years old, that sounds really old. Sounds good to me, right? You see, God reveals himself to us in his word. We can agree on that. But does he reveal himself to us in any other ways? I may be opening up a can of worms here. But what about Psalm 19? Just to answer that question, does God reveal himself to us in any other ways besides his word? The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. What is this telling us? It's telling us that creation itself reveals to us something about God. Is it possible that creation, God's, we call this God's natural revelation, God's natural revelation can inform us on how we might read the account of creation, creation in God's word. These are both God's revelation, God's word and the cosmos. That's something we want to consider as we continue this discussion today. You, as people of faith, presumably all whom believe that Scripture is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. How do you answer questions like these for your non-believing friends and family members? Literally, this is a make-or-break issue for a lot of people. I can't believe in, an, in a religion that tells me the earth is 6,000 years old when science tells me otherwise. So in light of that, I have to categorically deny and reject the, the entire Bible and everything in it. This is what people are saying, okay? Now, at the risk of you all reaching some of my points in, in my notes here before I do, let me ask you, what do you say? How do you answer those who object to the idea of a world created in six days, citing that's a scientific impossibility, and that it can't be just six or 7,000 years old, it's scientific impossibility, what do you have to say with that? How do you answer that as people of faith to your non-believing friends? Who wants to take a, you guys that want to participate, sit all the way in the back here. <laughs> <laughs> David. I just sat where my wife sat down. So um, my 13-year-old just asked this question to me the other day. And so, and he's becoming very inquisitive in his young, um, believing, faithful life. And so um, my explanation to him, as, as uh, he's also a student here at CPA, and and is getting a good Christian education here and uh, being challenged and hearing lots of different viewpoints. And so one viewpoint that I said is possible because we don't know for sure is that days um, as, they're, as they're spoken of in the early origination of the world might not have been 24 hour long days. 
a day could have been the equivalent of a thousand years. We don't know that with 100% certainty. And because of that, you know, one of the things that he gives me a hard time about is I don't believe in dinosaurs. And, uh, and he said, well, why don't you believe in dinosaurs, Dad? And I said, well, I would think in the Bible, surely to goodness, if man was created early on, then there would be some sort of period where someone would have said, oh, and, and then our pet T-Rex came by that day, and there, there would be some story about that. And he said, well, but, to, he said, to your point, Dad, if the earth was created first, and maybe it was a thousand years, maybe those dinosaurs did exist thousands of years before Adam and Eve were even created, and so he had a really good rebuttal to even that point. And so, anyway, I think that there's, there's a lot that can be interpreted that we can still be taking the Bible literally, but our literal day might not have been a literal day when creation was first started. A 24-hour period, yeah, yeah. I, I like that answer. You're, you're getting into some of my notes. I have uh, Randy also sitting in the back here. That's all right, Randy. I'm going to make a walk here just for you. Randy, what, what say you? Well, I give up answering the question at all when I come across the question of when did God invent time? When did God invent time? Because he's eternal, right? So and even that... Nothing that and nothing exists that he didn't create. Someone else? Will? I see Will. Oh, there are several hands over here. All right. I'm getting my steps in. I would say that to somebody who asked that question would be that it's not really the whole point of the book of Genesis, or not even Genesis 1, to explain things from a scientific paradigm. It's, um, it's, a ancient, it's a piece of ancient Jewish literature. It's a chiasm, which is a form of ancient poetry, uh, which has certain purposes for the reader. And it's not a scientific lab report. Absolutely right. What was the purpose of that? Any, anytime you approach the scriptures... You know, you do well to ask yourself, what was the intent? What was the original author trying to communicate in writing this to whomever he's sending it to? Who is the audience? These are all important questions that you have to ask. And so what Will is saying here is that was Genesis 1, for instance, created to give us an exhaustive account of the creation itself and how it came about? I don't think so. All right? At the... uh, There'll be other opportunities for for everyone to to speak up here. But here's a couple of things that uh, sort of maybe David was referencing. Remember these types of verses that we have in the the scriptures. Just to start getting the the wheels turning here. 2 Peter 3.8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Psalm 90 verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. Or as a watch in the night. Another important aspect of reading the Bible, you use scripture to interpret scripture. If there's something that is unclear in one part of the Bible, you don't go looking to science books or uh, uh, horoscopes or anything like that. You go looking to other pages of the scripture to see how do they use the word, for instance, day in other parts of the scripture. Well, this is pretty informative in that regard, okay? That's the first thing. Okay, what do those verses tell us about the creation account in the first chapter of Genesis? When we read that he, he made the sun in a day, that one day might represent more than one day as we know it. This is what David would say, because was David was saying, because the word is telling us that to the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. You know, so don't look at those numbers as, as a mathematical ratio, for instance. Look at those numbers and draw the conclusion that we're being told that God is not bound by time or space. 
right? This is what we're, we're being told here. God is not bound by time or space. So, when God did this, you know, knowing that he is infinite, not bound by time or space, so when that we read that God created the sun and the moon in the day, are we to believe that he created them in a single 24-hour period? Ultimately, that's the question we're asking. So, back to the creation, back to the, the question that we began with at the start of our time. Do we read the Bible literally? Do we read the Bible literally? Let me ask you this, for instance. Are we to read in the third chapter of Genesis, creation's in the first chapter, when we get to the third chapter of Genesis, when we first meet the serpent that Adam and Eve actually encountered a talking serpent, do we read that literally? Or is it possible that maybe the Bible is speaking in metaphor or symbolically? Do we read that literally? Now, before you answer that, before you utter heresy, no, I'm just kidding. Let me ask you this. How about when the Bible speaks of Moses dividing the Red Sea so the Israelites could walk on, Israelites could walk on dry land? Are we to believe that that actually happened? Or was it some sort of symbolic parting of the Red Sea? Do we read that account literally? All right. How about the New Testament? Are we really to believe that Jesus walked on water? Or maybe that too is some sort of symbolic description of sorts. Are we to read that account literally? Okay, if we believe those accounts actually took place, miraculous events, is it a stretch to believe that God could somehow miraculously create the earth in six days, 6,000 years ago? So do we read that account literally? Well, maybe. But... The Ten Commandments. Do we take those literally? Do we read the Ten Commandments literally? Or is that some sort of symbolic reference to something else? All right, let me ask the question another way, a roundabout way, uh, that maybe will get us closer to where we're going. David was a man after God's own heart. That's what we read in the Bible, 1 Samuel 13, 14. That, that seems to be a really good title. He, he must have been a good guy. I would think that we'd want, uh, all want a title like that. Well, David, a man after God's own heart, he committed adultery. Ergo, we can commit adultery because he's a man after God's own heart, right? It stands to reason. I mean, David is one of our biblical heroes. He committed adultery, so therefore we can too. That's a bad conclusion. All right, why do, you, you know, why, why do I say that? Again, you read about Solomon, same thing, granted all kinds of godly wisdom, and he can have more than one wife. Does that mean, okay, I can have more than one wife too? No. What's the error I'm making here? Okay, Danny made reference to this earlier. You have to understand the context. You have to understand the genre that is being given to us in the Bible here. We had a Bible study here, a small group study not too long ago, called A Firm Foundation, and it has to do with these biblical genres, okay? So many of those passages, for instance, about uh, David and Solomon, we read in the Old Testament that those are what we call historical narrative. Again, a historical narrative details events as they're happening. You know, that portion of the scripture, historical narrative, is not, for instance, like what David Watson just told us about, the law, the Ten Commandments. When you get law, like in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, we are specifically being told to do something. I'm giving you instruction here. When we read about David and Solomon, we're not receiving instruction there. We're receiving a description, okay? So when we read the Ten Commandments, we call that, that is prescriptive language, Whereas when we read about Solomon and David, that's descriptive language. And you have to be able to differentiate between the two. Okay? So, 
you interpret historical narrative differently than you would interpret, say, poetry. You interpret poetry differently than you would interpret, say, one of Paul's letters. And Paul's letters differently than books of prophecy or apocalyptic books like Daniel and Revelation. Okay? So you take them and read them and consider them for what they are. So, do you take these different books of the Bible literally? Do we interpret Genesis in the opening account of creation literally? Yes. We interpret them according to the type of literature that it is. You take the whole thing and interpret it literally, considering what type of literature it is. Okay? In other words, a verb is a verb. A noun is a noun. Poetry is poetry. Historical narrative is historical narrative. And you always want to ask yourself, what is the author trying to communicate? All right? So you have to consider this just so you don't read into the text whatever you want to read into it. What, what was the author trying to say when he spoke to the original audience? But you have to understand this. All of it. All of it you read literally. But again, you interpret it according to the type of literature that it is. You with me so far? Does that make sense? In other words, you have to put on your different lenses depending on the type of literature that you're reading. Let me give you some more examples here. Put that in your back pocket for a minute. Uh, we'll come back. Let's, let's actually start reading through the creation account in Genesis 1. And we'll go ahead and start reading this. And what I'm going to do, rather than read the whole account, I'm going to read a portion, just the first uh, 13 verses. And as I read them, I want you to be thinking what this sounds like you're reading. What is it that we're reading? Does it sound like historical narrative? like someone is describing something to me, blow by blow? Or does it sound like poetry? Do you, see, do you notice poetical elements in it? Or does it sound like something else? Here we go, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created... Now, just from the offset, too, you have to remember, this was originally uh, you know, given to us in Hebrew language. Uh, so you're not going to necessarily think, see things like rhyme. So if, just because it doesn't rhyme, don't think, well, it's not poetry. There's other elements of poetry. There's other elements of historical narrative that may not be evidently uh, given to us here in the English language. But again, just try and think through what we're, we're reading here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the faces of the water, the face of the water. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. Now, what do you think? What are we reading? Does it sound like historical narrative? Or are we seeing other literary 
items, elements that may not be in historical narrative, parallelisms, repetition. Let's take an informal vote right here. Who thinks this is some sort of poetry or song? Poetry or song, okay, good. Who thinks this is perhaps more just a historical narrative? One, two, three, come on, don't be shy now. It's okay, There's, I'm not gonna yell at any of you. Yeah, you still have to consider a day is a thousand years and a thousand years like a day, depending on how you read it, okay? Now, uh, just another thing to think about here. Uh, who is the author of Genesis? It's attributed to Moses. Was Moses alive? He was, so we're not getting a first-hand account. What are we getting from Moses here? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of the Lord, telling Moses what to write down. Consider that too. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to walk you through three different positions, and I get, I'm going to try and get through these pretty quickly so that we don't keep here too long. But I'm going to read for you or go through three different positions that are widely held in the church today. And these three positions are all credible and, have, uh, and are considered to have or hold a high view of Scripture. Okay? All three of these positions are considered to have biblical credibility to them. So whichever one of these you land on, uh, any of these positions, you can say you have biblical support for it. And there's actually a, a, a paper that was published in the Presbyterian Church in America at one point several years back affirming all three of these ideas. So we may not agree on this, but at least you can walk away saying, well, someone agrees with me, right? But the first belief, all right, we've already, we've already touched on some of these, the calendar day interpretation. Calendar day interpretation. Quite simply, oops, no, I'm not going to have calendar, calendar day interpretation. What, what, uh, what do you think is the basis of this view? Plain and simple. The earth was created by God in six days, regardless of what science may say, uh, the Bible says six days, therefore I believe it was six days. The person who holds this position might say, I can't explain it, but I have enough faith in what the Bible says to believe that somehow, some way, whether it was 6,000 years ago or 6 trillion years ago, that God created the earth in six consecutive 24-hour days. End of story. I can't explain the rest. And I'm not here to explain the rest. And again, don't... don't uh, don't, some of you don't look diminutively at that, that idea because, again, what this position says is, no, I can't explain it, but therefore you're not checking your brain out because, look, there's been enough things that have happened to me over the course of my life to show me that God is faithful, God is true, God's word is good. Therefore, if there's something that I can't quite explain entirely, the basis of everything else that has happened that I've witnessed in my life, according to the scriptures, gives me enough faith to say, I don't know, but I'm going to take his word for it, okay? Now, with this belief, to a certain extent, you have to say, again, I'm not sure how to account for the time difference between what's written in the Bible genealogically and the apparent age of the earth. God worked it out, and it's not for me to worry about, okay? That's the day, the calendar day interpretation. Second belief, the day-age interpretation. Now, this is more what David uh, was talking about a, a minute ago. Uh, the understanding is that the interpretation of the Hebrew word for day, which is yom, in English, same way as our word day, it can be slippery. 
this idea has to do with how the word day is used in the opening chapters of Genesis. That, that, that Hebrew word, yes, yom, refers to a 24-hour period, the cycle of the sun coming up in the morning and going down in the evening and then starting all over again. However, as we can see in English, sometimes day can suggest something else. Back in my day, I used to play outside. Back in my day, we didn't have computers. And the other day, I told my kids, get off your computers. You've been on that, you've been on that thing all day. In my day, we used to play outside all day. Now, I've just used the word day several times in that one thought. But did it have the same meaning each time? No, it didn't. At least, at least, I'm not, in more than one instance, I'm not pointing to a day as a 24-hour calendar period of time. Back in my day, that doesn't refer to a 24-hour period. You spend all day on your computer, 24 hours? Not really. That's not what I'm suggesting, okay? Back in King David's day, for instance, that could refer to the entire lifespan of King David, or you can apply that reasoning to just a, a portion, so again, same thing for Genesis 1, that each day doesn't necessarily have to refer to a single 24-hour period. Now, the problem that you might encounter with that idea is that each day of creation is punctuated, I don't know if you've noticed this, with, and there was evening, and there was morning. You're going to have to argue that the Hebrew word yom is referring to a period of time rather than a calendar day. You know, that's, that's not symbolism or metaphor. It's a different use of the word day, but you might introduce elements of morning and evening. Now, you almost can't be talking about an era when you're, when you're reading that. It's either a 24-hour period or metaphor. You see, uh, but even still, you can weave metaphors into historical narrative. You can weave metaphor into historical narrative, but it's not common in the Bible where you have a historical narrative and you see something like the sun set on David's reign. You don't, you don't see that in the Bible's historical narratives. It's usually more straightforward than that, more like King David lived this many years and then he died. You know, it's pretty dry in that respect. So with this understanding, you have to believe you're reading a piece of literature that is an historical narrative, but perhaps you're saying also that there's a bit of poetical license that the author has taken by weaving in this, this symbolic language of sorts, okay? Um, it's an element to have there. Again, this is something that you have to sort of say, okay, it is historical narrative, but maybe with a little bit of poetry to it too, okay? That's the day-age interpretation. A day isn't always a day. And then lastly, I want to tell you about the framework view, the framework view. I think someone was alluding to this one too. Uh, this, it was Will. Will, when he, he said uh, it's a chiastic uh, piece of literature. A chiasm, okay? Uh, this concept centers around the idea that Genesis is written in a peculiar manner. Okay, sometimes, again, we have historical narrative, a detailing of a story. First this happened, then this happened, then we went there, then we went here. It's historical narrative. Then there are times in the Bible we have poetry, like, like in Psalms or Song of Solomon. And, and there's usually strong indicators, not rhyming. We don't have rhyme in the Bible because of the language translation. But you recognize the fact that it's poetry because you see metaphorical language. For instance, you may read something in Psalms, as in water, face, as in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects the man, okay? 
if we have a, uh, we have a, a nurse practitioner here who is a, a cardiologist in, in uh, uh, her, her specialty, if I were to ask you, have you ever seen inside a man's chest, and, and when you opened up that chest, did you ever see an image of that guy on his chest? Ever? Not once? Never. Are you sure? Okay, not once. Okay, so, well, that verse isn't literal in the historical narrative sense. It's literal in the poetic sense. You see, it's not that we don't take it literally. We take it literally within the genre that it's written. Now, with that said, what genre is Genesis written in? Speaking of the whole book, okay, speaking of the whole book, sto like stories with talking serpents and such, would you think historical narrative or poetry or prophecy, is it a letter, apocalyptic? That's the problem with Genesis, okay? It seems to have a few bit of different genres sprinkled out throughout, throughout much of it, well, at least the beginning. So much of the book, it reads very much like historical narrative. You don't see the markings of like poetry or, or things like that. But the opening verses of the creation account, it's tough to identify. So it's been suggested by numerous biblical scholars that it's written in the style of like uh, a play where it's broken into six different acts and each of the act is punctuated with, and there was morning, excuse me, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. That happens at the end of verse 8, and then again at the end of verse 13, end of verse 19, end of verse 23, end of verse 31, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day, all the way through the account. Do you see the peculiar nature in which that's written? Again, if you're writing a straight-up historical narrative, I'm just going to give you the, the details, the facts, like you would read in 1st or 2nd Chronicles, 1st or 2nd Samuel, you don't see things like this in there, okay? The verse suggests an almost poetical style. It gives you enough pause to wonder if perhaps you're not reading a straight-up historical account. And then you might notice man in Genesis 1 is created in verse 27, and he says male and female, he created them. But then you go into Genesis chapter 2. What do you have there? A more detailed account of the female side of humanity. Why are there two different accounts unless chapter 1 serves a different function than chapter 2? Okay? Looking at chapter 1 again. Notice the form of what's going on here with the day. This is what's called the framework view, what Will was, was suggesting here a second ago. On the first day, you have light. Okay? The second day, you have the sky and the sea. Third day, you have land and vegetation. What do you have on the fourth day? Sources of light. What do you have on the fifth day? Sky and sea dwellers. What do you have on the sixth day? Land dwellers. And then you have rest on the Sabbath. Well, isn't that nice and balanced. Isn't that nice and uh, almost a, a call and response? There's something to this. Again, this is form. This is not something you normally see in historical narrative, right? If I'm going to tell you a story exactly what happened blow by blow, I'm not going to say, well, let's try and balance it out. I'm going to tell you exactly what happened, okay? You look at this and you see how someone could look at this and think, oh, balance, symmetry, this is poetry, okay? Or, or, or it's nothing poetical from the literary sense. It's maybe you could just say, God is just a God of order, and this is how he did it. 
okay? But poetry makes itself known by its strophic nature, and strophic means its repetition, its refrains, its patterns, and its, its parallelisms. When you have these elements, as, as your, your reader should immediately be, be alerted, ah, this is a song, or this is poetry, this is something besides a straight-up historical narrative. See that? Each day is a scene closed with the refrain, the refrain and there was morning, and there was evening, okay? And so, again, this gives you enough pause to say, I'm not sure what I'm reading, but I don't think it's historical narrative straight up, all right? Now, we're at 11.32, and I still have a lot to go, but I'm going to give you the, the short uh, conclusion here. I want to ask you, and this is what we referred to early on, what is the, the main point of this account? What is the main point of Genesis 1? is the main point of Genesis 1, again, to give us an extended understanding of how God created the heavens and the earth. I don't think it is. I have to say this before I go on to. Genesis 1, Genesis 2 is peculiar. By the time we get to Genesis 3, talking serpent, I believe we're in straight-up historical narrative at that point. Okay? I have to say that because I don't want you to walk away thinking, oh, all of Genesis maybe is a poem. No. Because again, you read how the rest of Genesis reads, and it does. It reads more like historical narrative. So that's why when I say, it's not that I can't believe possibly that the Lord would, would create uh, the, the, the earth in, in six days' time. I'm open to that idea. I certainly am. But when I read about a, a, a talking serpent, I believe it's a talking serpent. Having said that, one day the Lord will crush the head of the serpent, literally or metaphorically. You see? But again, I do believe that once we're, we're into Genesis 3, it's historical narrative, and I believe that we're talking about a talking serpent. When the, uh, in Exodus, when the, when the waters divided as, as Moses put down his staff, I believe the waters divided. When we read about Jesus walking on the water, I believe he walked on the water because, again, I'm reading how the passage is, is, uh, is set up uh, in, a, in a context point of view, from a context point of view. I believe it to be historical narrative in, in those details. Now, the main point of all of this is to show us what? It's to show us the intentionality of God. If there's one thing that this passage communicates to us, it's that the world was created with intentionality. It wasn't an accident. That's what this account, that's what Genesis 1 tells us, that the world wasn't made by accident. It has purpose. It has design. It has order, right? It has deliberate intention. It wasn't just always there. It's not eternal. It came from somewhere. And where was that somewhere? It came from the mouth of God. That's what you have to walk away with in Genesis 1. Whether you believe in, in the day interpretation, the, the day age uh, view, or the framework view, I don't care. I almost, I almost don't care what you believe there. But what I do want you to believe is that God created it by the power of his mouth. He spoke it into existence where there was once nothing, then there was something. That is the God that we serve, and that is the God that is described in Genesis 1, 2, and for that matter, all the way through Revelation 21. Okay? The main point of the account is to show us the intentionality of God. And here's the payoff. If the world was put here with purpose and design, do you see what that means? It means you have purpose and design. If there is intentionality to the universe, there's intentionality to why you are here. It gives you purpose. This gives you purpose. 
If the universe is here because it's a giant cosmic accident, then there's no purpose for you being here. I have bad news for you in that regard. It's all an extension of that great cosmic accident. So live as you please, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter if you're a minister or a mass murderer. It's all just a cosmic accident. You see, the doctrine of creation says there is purpose. You were made. You were created. You were designed. And because you were designed and because you were cast in the image of someone, this is what gives you and the rest of creation purpose. We're here for a reason, to love God and enjoy him forever. That's what this account tells us. And with that, I will put a period on that one. Well, that takes us to 1136. Any quick questions or comments? <laughs> Real quick, yeah, Jody. Where do you land? Uh, you want to know which one I land? I will... Uh, Honestly, I don't mind telling you. I, I, do, I subscribe to framework. But again, that what we have in Genesis 1 is some sort of, again, not exhaustive detail, but more of a, a poem, more of a, a play of sorts that gives us a framework. And so that allows for a lot. Again, but I'm also willing to say I may be wrong, and that's okay. Yeah, someone else? Yeah, Will. Um, I was just curious, and this is way open-ended, um, but I just had it on my mind. I've thought about this a lot in the past. The verses that come before the account of God forming the earth and forming everything and before he even says let there be light where it's um it's formless and void and there's water and there's there's um the spirit hovering and there's things there that ha that are that are existing before God says let there be light so are those things created by God or just there in in some other capacity yeah. Yes, those things were created by God. Everything that is, that uh, will be, and that, that was, is created by God. And so again, that, but that's another reason why you might look at Genesis 1 and think, okay, I don't have a blow-by-blow -blow detail of creation here. Because again, there are pieces in place before he even speaks of those, those things later on. Same thing when he talks about uh, the creation of man and woman. Male and female, he made them. But then we get in Genesis 2 in a, a more exhaustive detail of how male or female was created. And again, that's why I say Genesis 1 isn't meant to give us a blow-by-blow a, a -blow account of how creation was made, but it does tell us that God did this. God made this. He spoke it with his words, and that gives us purpose. That's the thing we should walk away with. Anyone else? All right. Oh, yes. Yeah. Ashley. So when you have someone that <clears throat> is looking at it from the science, so the scientific part, how do you, like I just remember, I mean, I went to Baptist college, so I feel like everybody's kind of on the same page, but since then, I feel like, how do you explain to someone, like, who made God? Who made God? Like, when they ask that question. Okay, if, yeah, someone of a science nature tells you, so, so who made God? Okay, see, this is, this is the dividing line here, because you have to point to the universe and everything in it and say that everything that is within the universe has a beginning and has an end. Everything. And so that means that nothing can exist without a beginning and an end. So there has to be something. There has to be something, some entity that does not have a beginning. Okay? And so some people will say, well, it's the universe itself. Nothing in the universe points us to the fact that there's, there's e eternal nature to it. So again, that only points to the fact that it has to be something that exists outside of time and space, that does not have a beginning, that does not have an end. And the only thing that is descriptive of that is a supreme being, okay? There's no other explanation. There is no other, ex because everything else in the universe has a beginning and an end. 
And so there's nothing in the universe itself that just always was. Show me that thing. Show me that thing is what I would say. Show me the one thing that always just was, that does not deteriorate, that does not age over time. It's not there. So there has to be something that exists outside of that in order for everything else to be enabled. So, anyone else? Let me pray. Oh, maybe you're, maybe you're talking to a scientific person. Hang on. The universe was created through the Big Bang theory, or some. They have a. So, so what do you believe created the universe? Whatever. I mean, um, then God said, "Let there be light." What's to say that God speaking, "Let there be light," wasn't the Big Bang theory? Yep. It had to start somewhere. It had to start somewhere again with something that exists outside of time and space. So. All right, let me close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the wonder that is creation. Thank you for the wonder that is your word. And thank you that you've given us both, given them both to us. Uh, help us to take these things and not just uh, take them for granted, but, but just marvel in the fact that you've given them to us. And as we wrestle with these things, help us just to be pointed back to the fact over and over again that, that you are the Lord, you are supreme, and you have called us out of darkness, that that God of wonder uh, who does not need anyone or anything to exist has called us into fellowship with himself and, and help us to, to, to marvel at that. We thank you for the wonder of your creation and the wonder of your word and your love for us. And it's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you all.